This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program once again. Psychiatrist Dr. Louis Tartaglia is an expert on the role of character in the running of organizations. He's the author of a number of books and numerous articles, as well as an inspirational speaker on character and personal development. He was a consultant on Mother Teresa's Third Order on issues of substance abuse and recovery. On his website, The Impact of Character, that's www.tartaglia.com, in an article entitled Addicted to Being Right, he claims that addiction to being right is the most common of all character flaws. You see it everywhere, from Archie Bunker to Angelica, from Bill Clinton to Ross Perot, he writes. It's almost impossible to find someone who's not addicted to being right. You know who these people are. They have to get you to agree, and their way is the right way. You may have a good idea, but if it doesn't agree with theirs, they will criticize you. If you stand up for your own opinion, they get upset. They don't feel happy until and unless you can see it their way. He makes the difference between being right and being addicted to being right, saying that we should defend what he calls righteous behavior. But that doesn't give us the right to drive other people crazy or justify trying to control or change things we have no control over. Obviously a fan of the 70s comedy sitcom All in the Family, he says, Remember the scene where Archie Bunker watches his commie pinko leftist liberal son-in-law put on his shoes and socks. His son-in-law puts on the left sock, the left shoe, and then starts on the right sock. Archie gets livid. You're not supposed to do it that way. Any idiot knows it's the right sock, then left sock, and then you start on the shoes. Archie can't convince him to change the way he does it and stays upset for, about it for quite a while. He's addicted to being right. Like the cartoon I mentioned earlier, Archie Bunker also shows us to what depths of ridiculousness this addiction can drive us. Dr. Tartaglia continues, Would you be rather right or happy, asked a therapist to, to, to one of my patients. I thought about that for a while. Some people are so caught up in the need to be right that they will sacrifice their own sense of well-being. They argue incessantly about their point of view. You know the type. They have to convince you of their opinion, not offer it to you. Being upset about the things we cannot control, especially the thoughts of other people, is goofy. Allowing your emotions to go out of control because someone else doesn't agree with you is not too sane either. The doctor points out that most of us don't have enough control over our emotions so that we can stop them from erupting. But he says we can turn them down when they flare up. And nor can we, can we control our automatic belief that the way we think is the only truth. 
Our beliefs are fairly well engraved into our psyche, he says. Some come from with birth and others come from the way we are raised. But regardless of where they come from, we pretty much believe them. Of course, humans can gain experience, insight and wisdom as they age, he admits, but they can also become more entrenched with each passing year. A person can become more addicted to being right as they unhappily go through life. Being right is not a solution to life's problems, though many of us treat it as though it were. Being right for many of us feels like it's safe. At least I knew I was right. Sometimes being right feels like being stable. Now that you've got that straight, we can get on with the other business. I've heard numerous patients tell me that they were severely punished by their childhood figures of authority. The only way to avoid it was to prove you were justified, to prove you were right. For them, addicted to being right was crucial for them to have a feeling of well-being. It was a solution to an unsafe situation. Now it's safety and security. The doctor goes on, More often than not, though, being right is just about false pride and the need to feel important or better than someone else. It's driven by inadequacy and shame. In that case, it's a poor solution, and it's always temporary, because the inadequacy lingers below the surface, awaiting someone else to set it off. Addicted to being right is the problem, not the solution. If I'm addicted to being right, all I have to do is find someone else to contradict me. I wait, I seek, I react, I pounce. Addicted to being right then becomes an attack. It doesn't feel that way to the person who has the flaw, but just ask your friends. The boss who is addicted to being right is the one who gets the rolled eyes by his subordinates and has work relationships that are at a more than casual distance because no one can really approach him with an, or an original idea. You can approach him with one of his original ideas, but not with your own. When wrong, admit it, says the doctor. Did that shock you? Then let me tone it down a little. If you have the character flaw, addicted to being right, shock your friends and family. Every now and then admit that you are wrong. No one is right all the time, especially you, so admit it when you can. He goes on to say that sometimes it may be that even though you know you are wrong, it's too difficult to admit it. Then just make yourself willing to, without actually admitting to it. It will come as a shock to you, but actually admitting it is easier than the willingness to admit it, he claims. When it does come, when you actually say, I think I'm mistaken and you're right about this, you will shock your friends. They'll recover. Trust me, they will. He goes on, here's a brief summary of how you deprogram the addicted to being right flaw. Notice that you're upset that someone else doesn't agree that you're right. Pause and allow yourself to see how crazy it is to be upset about who's right. Don't be angry that you're in reaction, but chalk it up to an opportunity to gain insight about yourself. Forgive the other person for not having your wonderful insight. Hey, they have the freedom to believe what they want. If by any remote possibility you believe that you are in reaction and wrong about it, please admit it. The bottom line here is that people who are addicted to being right usually sound pretty stupid. That doesn't sound too kind, but you know it's true. Someone who would rather be right than happy usually will argue to the point of absurdity. 
as we saw with the two cartoon characters deciding on the best route to take. Dr. Tartaglia continues, A very astute editor once graciously pointed out that right and happy are not two ends of the same spectrum. I know that. It's about being in reaction to the right of other people to have their own thoughts versus being happy with that freedom. It's about having the serenity to control what you can and accepting that someone else controls what they believe. Go ahead and shock someone over the next few days. When wrong, promptly admit it. It's fun, it takes integrity, and it's a character-building experience. Now, I think that many of you will probably not be too addicted to being right, but it is helpful to remember the words of Dr. Tartaglia and Judith E. Glasser from last week's, last week's program when that righteous feeling arises during a discussion or argument. But now, before we go on, let's set our motivation as usual. If you can, set about a cheetah motivation. May this program be the cause for your enlightenment so you can best benefit all living beings, both temporally and ultimately. But if you can't, at least think of your own liberation from suffering. Thank you. Now to continue with the development of bodhicitta according to the equalizing and exchanging self for others method. We've been through the equalizing practices and the first of the four divisions of exchanging self for others points, that is, the disadvantages of self-cherishing. Now we're going through the benefits of cherishing others, though you may think that addiction to being right is something to do with the disadvantages of self-cherishing. And you would be right, and I got a bit sidetracked, but Tupton Children's caution last week about how always insisting on being right is not a way to cherish others. Anyway, First, just to recap what we mean by cherishing others. Remember Lama Tsongkhapa's explanation that we have to transform the categorical distinction between ourself and others so that being aware of oneself, we are aware of other, and being aware of others, we are aware of ourself. He compared it all to near and distant mountains. On this mountain, I see it as a near mountain. But when I go to the distant mountain, it becomes the near mountain and this becomes the distant mountain. And to revisit Tupton Children's points about the benefits of cherishing others above ourselves, remember she first said that positive actions are the source of positive karma, and positive karma is the source of happiness. Positive actions, or at the very least the avoidance of negative actions, means not harming others, or ourselves, by helping as much as we can, that is, cherishing them. So, if we want to create happiness, we must cherish others. In that way, we don't cause any battles, domestic, civil or international, but create instead a peaceful environment where all beings can thrive. It's very useful to keep in mind that we are all interrelated, and if I really want happiness for myself, I cannot cause unhappiness for others. Thich Nhat Hanh has such a beautiful take on this that I really like to refer to his teachings often. Oprah Winfrey interviewed him in 2010, and some of you may have heard the interchange, but I'm going to take a couple of excerpts out of the interview that I think are relevant to what we are discussing here today. We start where Oprah asked him, Do you ever sit silently with yourself, or recite a mantra, or not recite a mantra? Yes, the Master replied, we sit alone, we sit together. The more people you sit with, the better, said Oprah. 
Yes, the collective energy is very helpful, said Thich Nhat Hanh, and then went on, I'd like to talk about the mantras you just mentioned. The first one is, Darling, I'm here for you. When you love someone, the best you can offer is your presence. How can you love if you're not there? You look into their eyes and you say, Darling, you know something, I'm here for you. You offer him or her your presence. You're not preoccupied with the past or the future. You are there for your beloved. The second mantra is, Darling, I know you're there and I'm so happy. Because you are fully there, you recognize the presence of your beloved as something very precious. You embrace your beloved with mindfulness, and he or she will bloom like a flower. To be loved means to be recognized as existing. And these two mantras can bring happiness right away, even if your beloved one is not there. You can use your telephone and practice the mantra. Or email, said Opera. Email, Thich Han agreed. You don't have to practice it in Sanskrit or Tibetan. You can practice in English. As Opera repeated the mantra, Darling, I'm here for you, Thich Nhat Hanh chimed in, and I'm very happy. The third mantra is what you practice when your beloved one is suffering. Darling, I know you're suffering. That is why I'm here for you. Before you do something to help, your presence already can bring some relief. The acknowledgement of the suffering or the hurting, Opera summed up. Yes. And the fourth mantra is a little bit more difficult. It is when you suffer and you believe that your suffering has been caused by your beloved. If someone else had done the same wrong to you, you would have suffered less. But this is the person you love the most, so you suffer deeply. You prefer to go to your room and close the door and suffer alone. You are hurt. And you want to punish him or her for having made you suffer. The mantra is to overcome that. Darling, I suffer. I'm trying my best to practice. Please help me. You go to him, you go to her and practice that. And if you can bring yourself to say that mantra, you suffer less right away because you do not have that obstacle standing between you and the other person. Opera repeated the mantra and then asked, What if he or she is not willing to help you? First of all, when you love someone, you want to share everything with him or her, said Tignat Han. So it's your duty to say, I suffer and I want you to know. And he will, she will appreciate it. If he or she loves you, said Opera. Yes, this is the case of two people who love each other, your beloved one. And when I've been trying my best to look deeply, to see whether this suffering comes from my wrong perception, and I might be able to transform it, but in this case I cannot transform it. You should help me, darling. You should tell me why you have done such a thing to me, said such a thing to me. In that way, you've expressed your trust, your confidence. You don't want to punish any more, and that is why you suffer less right away. Now, of course, this conversation focuses on the person closest to you, your beloved. And I wondered, what about those not so close to you? How can you learn to cherish them as much as this? It's not always possible to approach people you're not so intimate with in the same way. They will certainly not have the tolerance or understanding for you that your beloved may have. A little strangely, Thich Han answered the question when Opera asked him about something else, what he believes happens after death. The question can be answered when you can answer this, 
What happens in the present moment? answered Thich Nhat Hanh. In the present moment, you are producing thought, speech and action, and they continue in the world. Every thought you produce, anything you say, any action you do, it bears your signature. Action is called karma, and that's your continuation. When this body disintegrates, you continue on with your actions. It's like the cloud in the sky. When the cloud is no longer in the sky, it hasn't died. The cloud is continued in other forms, like rain or snow or ice. Our nature is the nature of no birth and no death. It is impossible for a cloud to pass from being into non-being. And that is true with the beloved person. They have not died. They have continued in many new forms, and you can look deeply and recognize them in you and around you. Is that what you meant when you wrote one of my favorite poems, Call Me By My True Names, Opera asked. Yes, answered Thich Nhat Hanh. When you call me European, I say yes. When you call me Arab, I say yes. When you call me black, I say yes. When you call me white, I say yes. Because I am in you and you are in me. We have to interbe with everything in the cosmos. Oprah then read from the poem, I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. And then Opera asked, What does that poem mean? It means compassion is our most important practice, replied the Master. Understanding brings compassion. Understanding the suffering that living beings undergo helps liberate the energy of compassion. And with that energy, you know what to do. The thing is, of course, when we can begin to see that every creature contains as it and is contained in ourselves, it becomes much easier to cherish them as we do ourselves. When I talk to someone else, with every breath I take, I am breathing in atoms he or she has breathed out. And if I touch them, we also exchange subtle parts of our bodies. We really do subtly become each other. So apart from the mental or emotional turmoil my agitation gives this person, when I exchange particles motivated by that agitation, surely I am not bringing peace to them. This all applies to everyone, so is there anyone I can point to and say I contain no atoms that that person ever had? If I can deeply realize how closely interrelated we really are, as Thich Nhat Hanh describes, it becomes compelling to act compassionately, for I also see how interwoven our happiness and sorrow is. Talking about atoms, we can take another tack and think back to the beginning of our universe. Bill Bryson, in his book A Short History of Nearly Everything, talks about how atoms liberally and congenially flock together to form living beings on earth. He points out that at the level of chemistry, life is very mundane, and the only special thing about the atoms that make you is that they have made you. 
but sooner or later they will no longer stick around together. They will disengage and wander their various ways to join with other atoms in other combinations. However, there are so many of them and they are so durable that, as Bryson writes, every atom you possess has almost certainly passed through several stars and has been part of millions of organisms on its way to becoming you. We are each so atomically numerous and so vigorously recycled at death that a significant number of our atoms, up to a billion for each of us, it has been suggested, probably belong to Shakespeare. A billion more each came from Buddha, Genghis Khan and Beethoven and any other historical figure you care to name. And then he also humorously notes, the personages have to be historical apparently as it takes the atom some decades to become thoroughly distributed. However much you may wish it, you're not yet one with Elvis Presley. So, thank goodness for atoms, he writes. But that's only part of what got us to where we are today. And he also points out, to be here now, alive in the 21st century, and smart enough to know it, you also had to be the beneficiary of an extraordinary string of biological good fortune. Survival on Earth is a surprisingly tricky business. Of the billions and billions of species of living things that have existed since the dawn of time, most, that's 99.99%, it has been suggested, are no longer around. Life on Earth, you see, is not only brief, but dismayingly tenuous. It is a curious feature of our existence that we come from a planet that is very good at promoting life, but even better at extinguishing it. Now, doesn't this remind you of what the Buddha said about pervading impermanence? But to continue, Bryson says the average species only lasts about 4 million years on Earth, and, I quote, to get from protoplasmal primordial atomic globule, as Gilbert and Sullivan put it, to sentient upright modern human has required you to mutate new trays over and over in a precisely timely manner for an exceedingly long while. So at various periods over the last 3.8 billion years, you have abhorred oxygen and then doted on it, grown fins and limbs and jaunty sails, laid eggs, flicked the air with a forked tongue, been sleek, been furry, lived underground, lived in trees, been as big as a deer and as small as a mouse, and a million things more. The tiniest deviation from any of these evolutionary imperatives, and you might now be licking algae from a cave wall, or lolling walrus-like on some stony shore, or disgorging air through the blowhole on the top of your head before diving sixty feet for a mouthful of delicious sandworms. Bryson goes on to write that not only have we since time immemorial been fortunate enough to belong to what he calls a favoured evolutionary line, but we've also had a quite incredible personal history. Consider the fact, he writes, that for 3.8 billion years, a period of time older than the Earth's mountains and rivers and oceans, every one of your forebears on both sides has been attractive enough to find a mate, healthy enough to reproduce, and sufficiently blessed by fate and circumstances to live long enough to do so. Not one of your pertinent ancestors was squashed, devoured, drowned, starved, stuck fast, untimely wounded or otherwise deflected from its life quest of delivering a tiny charge of genetic material to the right partner at the right moment to perpetuate the only possible sequence of hereditary combinations that could result, eventually, astoundingly and all too briefly, 
in you. No wonder Thich Nhat Hanh encourages us to think deeply and with great gratitude on our ancestors and all the circumstances that have allowed us to arrive at the point we're at now. We can further couple these biological and historical considerations with the reminder that our lives are completely dependent on other living beings. Our resources, pleasures and enjoyments all depend on the efforts and sacrifice of a myriad other beings. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says in a teaching on mind training, in one sense we can say that other sentient beings are really the principal source of all our experiences of joy, happiness and prosperity, and not only in terms of our day-to-day dealing with people. We can see that all the desirable experiences that we cherish or aspire to attain are dependent upon cooperation and interaction with other sentient beings. It's an obvious fact. Similarly, from the point of view of a practitioner on the path, many of the high levels of realization that you gain and the progress you make on your spiritual journey are dependent upon cooperation and interaction with other sentient beings. Furthermore, at the resultant state of Buddhahood, the truly compassionate activities of a Buddha can come about spontaneously without any effort only in relation to sentient beings, because they are the recipients and the beneficiaries of those enlightened activities. So one can see that other sentient beings are in a sense the true source of our joy, prosperity and happiness. Basic joys and comforts of life such as food, shelter, clothing and companionship are all dependent upon other sentient beings, as is fame and renown. Our feelings of comfort and sense of security are dependent upon other people's perceptions of us and their affection for us. It's almost as if human affection is the very basis of our existence. Our love cannot start without affection and our sustenance, proper growth and so on all depend on it. In order to achieve a calm mind, the more you have a sense of caring for others, the deeper your satisfaction will be. I think that the very moment you develop a sense of caring, others appear more positive, and that's because of your own attitude. On the other hand, if you reject others, they will appear to you in a negative way. Another thing that is quite clear to me is that the moment you think only of yourself, the focus of your whole mind narrows, and because of this narrow focus, uncomfortable things can appear huge and bring you fear and discomfort and a sense of feeling overwhelmed by misery. The moment you think of others with a sense of caring, however, your mind widens. Within that wider angle, your own problems appear to be of no significance, and this makes a big difference. If you have a sense of caring for others, you will manifest a kind of inner strength in spite of your own difficult situations and problems. With this strength, your problems will seem less significant and bothersome. By going beyond your own problems and taking care of others, you gain inner strength, self-confidence, courage, and a greater sense of calm. This is a clear example how one's way of thinking can really make a difference. When we put all what we've talked about today together, instead of our usual view of reality as a multitude of separate bits, pieces and entities, some of which we like, some of which we despise, we can start realizing how very intricately connected we are. We can, in a very real sense, understand that cherishing others is in fact the best way to cherish ourselves. And that completes the benefits of cherishing others. Next week we will continue with the last two sections in this method, exchanging self for others and taking and giving. But now time is up and we must part. Thanks for being part of the program today and please do join us again next week. Please dedicate all our positive potential 
to the enlightenment of all living beings. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.